What's happening and welcome to another Crossroads Connect podcast. Here we discuss everything from current Crossroad events to trending topics to how we can reconcile God's truth with the real world we live in. All right, hey, here we are with episode 12 of the Crossroads Connect podcast. It is always good to be sitting here with Pastor Matt Manning. I am Pastor Jared, and uh, man, just talking about different relevant things. Today in our episode, we're going to be talking about some traditions, our family traditions, traditions in the church, why they're important, why they can be good, and also why they can be bad and actually become cumbersome to the church moving forward. And so, uh, Matt, so good to be with you. How are you doing today? We're actually remote today. Yeah, we are doing this remote. I'm actually at uh, the Thornton location where we're doing this recording. And so if you hear any banging or noises, it's because our maintenance crew is on the roof. And I think that Dylan Fodge, our great maintenance guy, is actually doing cartwheels yeah. up there. At least that's what it sounds yeah. like. I mean, that sounds like something he would do. <laughs> totally, totally. So, yeah, so if there's any bangs or whatnot, I'm okay. Just know that, that that's what's going that's on. That's awesome. Well, yeah, so Matt, uh, just thinking about growing up or maybe either growing up, have, have any family traditions entered into your home now that you have your own kids that, that came from when you grew up? Yeah, um, particularly around Christmas. So one of the things that uh, happened when I was growing up in my family is that on Christmas Eve, my dad would read the book, uh, The Three Trees. Have you ever read that book with your kids, no, The Three Trees? No, I've read The Giving Tree. Yes. No, not that okay. one, but the three trees. Yeah. So it's about these three trees who long to bring glory to God. And then some people come up and cut them down and they each end up like one ends up the manger. One ends up the ship that Jesus pulls fish onto. And then one ends up the cross. And it's just this kind of this cool story of redemption. And so when Sarah and I got married, uh, my parents actually bought that book for us. And we've just made it a part of our Christmas tradition where on Christmas Eve, I sit down and read uh, the story of the three trees to my kids. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I'm, you're going to have to share that book with me because um, I'm interested now. Yeah, so. it's, it's, a cool, it's a cool book. And it's, uh, it's just this kind of this cool redemptive story of, of maybe God using us in ways that we don't quite see until the very end. And then we look back and we go, oh, that's what yeah. it was all about. That's cool. That's a little bit different. I mean, we always read the Christmas story, and that's part of like our, our Christmas morning deal is that we couldn't open any gifts until we recognized, hey, you know, uh, Jesus is uh, the reason why we, we do what we do, you know? Um, yeah, so do you still make your kids do that today? We do the Christmas story. We also do pajamas on Christmas Eve, but mm. something that Christiana has kind of brought in, and she just saw this somewhere. She, I think she found it on Pinterest or something, but uh, it was the, so the three wise men have three gifts, and yeah. so, uh, I mean, you know, however you want to theologically explain that, but, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so uh, one gift is a, a book for reading. Uh, one book, or one gift is a new set of clothes you know like some you know a couple of practical things and then the third one is is one one gift that is fun and christiana actually took those three gifts last year and built them into snowmen um and so we had when the kids came down there were four snowmen under the tree which was really really cool looking 
So yeah, that's cool. So one of the kids didn't get a gift, like it was just a snowman, or it was would, there three? Or was there three gifts in each snowman? There's three gifts in each snowman. Oh, okay. So I, th- so I like, thought it was like this joke where each <laughs> snowman was one gift, and one of your no. kids was like <laughs> empty, and it was yeah. like. No so, gift for you, yeah. kid. Uh, try to be better next year, and you might get a gift in the snowman. No, every kid gets a, their own snowman. So it's three boxes, three different sizes. Uh, the top one would then be the book. The middle one's probably the the clothes. And then the bottom box is your, whatever your special toy is that you're getting. And so, uh, And it makes it so that, man, I hate having clutter in our house and having a bunch of stuff that, uh, doesn't get used a lot and even if it does get u- used the kids don't know how to put anything away anyway so uh, making it limited and more financially sustainable you know yes. to for for all four of our kids to be able to do that I just that's something that Christiana brought in that I just love that's um, cool. and what she did growing up that we do now is Christmas crepes uh, on the morning so we eat uh, or we we open our gifts we do all that stuff and then we go in and we eat Christmas crepes which are just fantastic. I love it. Yeah, we do something similar. We do uh, homemade cinnamon rolls. Mm, and yes. So, yeah, we make homemade cinnamon rolls, and then we eat them actually on Christmas Eve. And over the last several years, actually, we've kind of made it a party. So we invite our neighborhood over. So we make like 50 cinnamon rolls, and then we invite all of our neighbors uh, to show up on Christmas Eve just for kind of like an open house for three hours. And uh, we do that. And then what we've started doing really the last five years, probably the last five years, is after our little Christmas party with our neighbors is that the Amdahls, Pastor Chris and his Mm -hmm. family and my family, we get together and we've made all these uh, little trinket gifts. And we go over to Sunny Acres, which is a retirement community or a living assisted facility. Mm -hmm. And we go over there. Sounds like it. Yes. And we go over there and we uh, go to the people's rooms and we sing Christmas carols to them and then give them a give them a little gift. And so it's always super fun. And it shows our kids that uh, there's something bigger going on and that they they can bring joy to people uh, by just their presence. And so, yeah, that's kind of our our Christmas thing. Cinnamon rolls, singing carols, opening gifts, reading three trees. Yeah, that's cool. yeah, I, it's interesting to me how what traditions do for us. Like there's nothing in particular about a tradition that says, yes, you have to do it this way or no, you don't. Um, but there's almost a sense of safety and security and knowing that you can do these things year after year. And I know that uh, a, another big one for me, a sense of comfort for me, has always been Chris, listening to Christmas music. Specifically, when we're decorating, uh, you know, we decorate the house for Christmas. We do it together as a family, and we throw on. Uh, I really, we have a record player, and so we always used to listen to the Carpenters record, uh, and that was like our our we always that was the first thing we listened to, and when we would decorate the tree and then decorate the house, and uh, ironically, Christiana hates the Carpenters, cannot stand <laughs> her voice, uh, and so we've moved on to to some other things, but. Um, uh, we, yeah, it, when I was in Ireland and I was feeling lonely in the, in the middle of July, I'd throw on some Christmas music, uh, because it, it gave me a sense of, of peace and security and brought me back home, uh, in, in a way, in a weird way. And so it's interesting to me how these, uh, traditions actually play into our psyche a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. And a lot of that revolves around the holidays for us, doesn't it? It does. Like a lot of traditions are around the holidays and 
like one of the traditions that we have when it comes to the holidays and Christmas music is I, I don't actually like Christmas music in our house before Thanksgiving. And so, yeah, yeah, it's like a, it's a fight that my kids are going to say, that's a stupid tradition, dad, we're getting rid of it because like we don't put up the tree till the day after Thanksgiving. That's the rule. And every year my wife and middle son Cademan try to conspire against me. Like if I'm out of town or something and they're like, let's put up the tree while dad's gone, yeah. you know, and all this kind of stuff. And so That's funny. yeah, that'll be one of the traditions that they go, this is dumb. We're putting up the Christmas tree in August. Totally in August. And you don't have to take it down till February. Yeah, there you go. So it's, it's a good six month <laughs> Christmas run. In fact, That's when right. we were in Lebanon a few years ago, we went there in January and, uh, we were going through the streets and I was walking with one of our uh, partners. His name is Pierre and we're walking through the streets and everything's still decorated. This is like end of January. Everything's still decorated for Christmas. And I was like, man, you Lebanese, you love your Christmas, don't you? And he started laughing. And I guess the Orthodox Christmas is a different date than the Christmas that we celebrate. Orthodox oh. Christmas, uh, happens a little bit later, like two or three weeks after. And so they had just celebrated Christmas. And so all this stuff was still up, but I thought it was that they just really loved Christmas <laughs> and that they had just kept their decorations up for like and a month later. they didn't pull it down yet. They hadn't that's pulled it funny. down yet. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So yeah. And man, I've been, I grew up in the church and I know that you grew up in the church and, uh, again, kind of revisiting the dream big series that we just went through, uh, the last few weeks, uh, at Crossroads and thinking about this shift in vision and this change of, of the direction that we're going as a church. And I know the thing that has been really difficult for me as a pastor is helping people move forward beyond our traditions. The things that we've been doing as a church for a really long time that have really become sacred to us, even though they don't have really any biblical uh, sustenance behind them to hold them in that place. And yet we, they've been elevated because we've done it so much. And it's, again, I think that it has a lot to do with that, that place of safety and security of, uh, man, I know that this is, you know, this is my church and this is what we do. And it, and it gives me a place, a sense of belonging. And so when that gets altered, I mean, if someone came in and said, Hey, you guys can't actually give presents, uh, anymore on Christmas Eve, you can't give pajamas. I'd be like, why not? Like, I, I like it. It gives me value. It, it makes me feel good. Uh, I don't want to change that. Why would you tell me to change that? And so uh, maybe you can just talk a little bit about uh, your experiences with traditions uh, in, in a church and what that looks like for us as Crossroads to uh, move forward in the Great Commission, uh, even at the cost of, of losing some of our traditions. Yeah, when it comes to traditions, one of my earliest uh church uh i don't know if it's conflicts or what the right word is when it comes to uh, traditions at least where two where tradition came up against um a thought that i kind of turned my head and turned sideways was uh, when it comes to what bible we read Mm -hmm. and so um, i don't know if you grew up uh, in a church like this but uh at one point we went to a church and the church was king james only yep and uh you know king james was the book was the bible that the apostle Paul read, you know, that's kind of the joke, even uh-huh. though it was written 1500 years after he lived, but, right. but that was like the book and all other Bibles had some problems with it in terms of the King James version. And so it was like, this is King James only. And so I can still quote to you verses. And sometimes I'd slip when I'm preaching a sermon, like I'll slip into King James language because that's uh-huh. how I memorized 
some of the verses in that space. And so, uh, yeah, really interesting. And, you know, when it comes to scholarship and everything else, man, the, tr- the uh, translations that we have today, whether you pick the New King James, the NIV, the ESV, uh, those are all susta- uh, substantially better uh, translations yeah. than the King James. I mean, just think of doing like medicine in the 1500s when the King James was written and what medicine is now. Like you would choose a doctor today over a doctor of, of yesteryear, right? And the same thing when it comes to translations and how much they've grown and how much the scholarship behind translations has grown. Uh, that's a legitimate thing. And so, um, yeah, so anyways, that, that was one of the early kind of traditions that that I bumped up into uh, in t- church world when it came to that, that I was, I mean, I wasn't a pastor. I was just like, well, why do we, why do we use this? Like we can't understand mm-hmm. it. And now ironically, I think in most churches that are kind of along our stream, ESV has almost reached that the English standard version has almost reached that level of like King James. If it's not the ESV, then it's not the right translation. And so it doesn't count. It doesn't count. Yeah. So <laughs> our generation's just doing, doing it again. But, uh, mm-hmm. that's one of the traditions that I found. And when it comes to traditions, whether that's music whether that's sacred ministries, whether that's what Bible you read. Uh, one of the things that I heard a long time ago from a pastor and leader named Andy Stanley is he was talking about traditions. And he said, you know, traditions are like the old couch in your basement. You know, yeah. you really love that old couch. Like that old couch has a ton of memories for you. There's significance and meaning to it. But when people come over and they go into the basement, they go, man, what's the deal with that old couch? Like, and you're like, oh man, that's the couch I love. And it's like, oh man, that couch is ugly. Like, why don't you get yeah. rid of that couch? And if someone was to buy our house, you know, the first thing that they would probably do is get rid of our old couch in the basement. And uh, that kind of fits or kind of the way that I think about traditions and uh, the way that the church should think about traditions, that they're important, they're meaningful, uh, but that we also realize that sometimes they just get old and ugly and we need to let them go. But those yeah. decisions are always difficult decisions to make. Yeah, and I think it's important to, to bring up the reality that that couch served a really good purpose for a really long time. Yeah. That, that because it's no longer useful doesn't mean that it didn't have use in the past because it it's just that it, it served its purpose and it's time to move forward. And I think that that's, it's really, really hard. Uh, I always thought it would be fun to uh, do like a YouTube show and call it Church Hoarders uh, and to go to uh, a bunch of different, uh, you know, churches, especially like small churches in the Midwest who hang on to everything. And, you know, it, it was it's kind of like a Gordon Ramsay thing, right, where he, he flips a restaurant in three days where you're not the pastor, so you, you are able to really be blunt and straight with people uh, so with their psychology as well, uh, you know, because a lot of the times they're holding on to things based on uh, more of a, a heart. It's more of a heart issue than it is an actual physical issue. And so it'd be like, Hey, we got to get rid of these things. You can't hang on to these things anymore. We need to move forward. We need to bring the gospel to people. Um, and in order to do that, you're actually going to have to let this thing go. Yeah. Uh, we were actually at, at a church I used to pastor. Uh, we, we had a, an annual garage sale. And so we had this room called the coal room that just collected stuff all year long for uh, for this garage sale. So when basically people don't want something, they stick it in the coal room and then we sell it. And uh, which is great. I mean, we sold money and we, we yeah. sent kids to camp. And so that was fine. But I, I found this like headboard. It's like a bed, like a bed headboard that I'm like, why do we have this? And so I take it upstairs uh, and bring it out for the garage sale. And one of the ladies is she got frustrated with me 
And she said, what are you doing? And I said, oh, we don't need this headboard. And she said, that's not a headboard. That's the original altar to this church. And so, uh, and I'm, I'm like, well, it looks like a headboard and it just sits in the coal room doing nothing. Like why? But to her, there was so many memories tied to that thing, you know, coming to church, seeing it, remember having services where people would go and pray at the, you know, so there's a lot of significance emotionally tied to this thing that the reality was that all it was was a piece of wood, Yeah, you know, and so um, helping people disassociate from uh, it's not actually the wood that's important. But it's actually the experience that people had with Jesus that is important. And that's really hard to help people move into that space because we attach ourselves to these things. Yeah. And, and we create, I call them church rules, and really they're, they're Pharisee rules, right? So the Pharisees were notorious for taking the law, upholding the law to their best ability, but then piling on a bunch of extra rules uh, that, uh, and, and then enforcing them upon other people. And, and I think that in our Western church, uh, we've done that, unfortunately. We, we've become modern-day Pharisees where we take something that has been taught to us and we make it gospel, and it actually has no biblical foundation whatsoever. Yeah, when you bring up the Pharisees, even Jesus kind of spoke about this, right, where he's sitting there and Jesus and the Pharisees, they kind of get into this, and the Pharisees question Jesus of why he's breaking the tradition of the elders, and right. kind of his conclusion in that is, is that uh, when it comes to our traditions, traditions are fine. Traditions are good. Uh, but when it comes up and bumps up against breaking a commandment of God, uh, then that's when we have to really question whether our traditions are serving us in the same way uh, that they did in the past. And, you know, one of the greatest yeah. commandments is to love God and to love our neighbor. And so, you know, when it comes to traditions in the church, by no means do I think we go out and just strip the church of traditions. I mean, some of the things that, that are traditional in the church uh, are huge, like like a candlelight service on Christmas Eve, that there's so much meaning and uh, fullness and satisfaction in terms of participating in something like that on Christmas Eve. And churches have been doing that for thousands upon thousands of years, right? And it doesn't really rub up or break up against the commandments of God, right? It's something that we do. Um, and yet at the same time, we have to go, if, if those services ever did start to become something more than what God is commanding us to do, if we're adding on things and becoming pharisaical in that, then, then we actually have to take a look at that. And so mm-hmm. I think that's where traditions in the church like live, like traditions in and of themselves are not bad. In fact, many times they're helpful. Uh, but there are occasions when the traditions become greater than what God commands in scriptures. And in those moments are the times that we have to really uh, question our motives behind what we're doing. And we mm-hmm. have to ask the, the question, right? Like with your altar story, you know, what, what good is an altar that's sitting in a room that nobody goes into? You know, we just mm-hmm. have it to have it in this space. And it's like, has that become an idol for us? Uh, right. And um, those are those are questions of the heart. And again, these aren't easy questions because they do go to belonging. And I would even argue probably more importantly, traditions even speak to our identity. Mm-hmm. And so absolutely. And so when it comes to that, uh, how do we how do we navigate that reality of that there's identity wrapped up in this? And yet it's it can't become an idol for us. Yeah. And you have to really I think self-evaluation is difficult um, uh, because 
a lot of the a lot of times with traditions it's gray right uh it's not it's it's not a matter of right and wrong it's it's really a gray area and so to come to somebody and say hey we should actually do it this way instead of that way uh they're going to argue right back and say well how come your way is better than my way when there's really no biblical principle to shift in that direction either other than if the reason that you're making the shift is to share the gospel and to uh, and to uh, help lead people to Jesus, like that has to be our motivation behind everything that we're doing. If I'm just doing something because I like it and because it makes me feel good, well, then I think that that's a red flag to say, man, I need to uh, I need to really evaluate: is my reason behind this thing actually to further the gospel, or is it? to make me feel good and to feel better and to feel closer to Jesus. And, and those are good things to do. Uh, it's good for me to, to express different ways and to experience, uh, to be intentional, to, to connect with Jesus, Mm -hmm. but I can't turn that into a rule and now make everybody in the room do the same thing just because it's what I like to do. Yeah. I think at the end of the day, the, the test place for us is what Jesus actually ends up quoting out of Isaiah where he says, you know, the people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And Mm -hmm. when it comes to the traditions and the habits of our life, you know, uh, they go one of two ways, either those habits and those traditions lead us uh, to greater worship and our heart moving towards God, or uh, we honor God with our lips, but really what we're giving praise to is the traditions and the habits that we keep. And yeah, I think at the end of the day, that's where, that's the checkpoint for our souls when it comes to not just traditions, but most things in our life that can become idols. Absolutely. And uh, I was just thinking too of for the mature believer, for the person that genuinely loves Jesus and is following Jesus. I was just thinking of Philippians two, three that, you know, it says do nothing out of selfish ambition, but in humility, consider others more important than yourself. Care more about what your brother and sister or care more about what that non-believer is interested in in order to connect them with Jesus than trying to create things that make me feel good. Yeah. Um, and so really it's a, it's a matter of humility and a, and a matter of surrender and saying, Jesus, I'm ready to give up everything. I'm ready to die to myself in order to follow you, in order to see more people come to know you and enter into the kingdom of God. Yeah, and I think the way that this applies out at Crossroads, particularly in light of the new vision, right, is that we're not going to go on this streak of slashing traditions and you know, killing sacred cows and all that kind of stuff. But I do think that part of our role is no soup for you. Yes, (laughs) exactly. As part of Mm -hmm. our role is to really is to ask the questions, you know, like with the stuff that we do and the stuff that has become sacred to us, like, is there still reason behind why we're doing them? And does it help us lead people to Jesus, both those who have not yet believed and those who do believe, does it lead them closer to Jesus? And so I think that that's part of um, some of the conversation that that's coming and it will be conversation. I don't think anybody, like I said, is going to take machetes to sacred cows or to things that we hold mm-hmm. and value and things that we find our identity in. Uh, but I think there is a season of, of asking questions of, of what does this look like as we move forward? Yeah. And we gotta be, it's always easier to see, uh, you know, when someone else is struggling with something than it is to see it in your own heart. When, whenever I'm doing, marriage counseling or pre-marriage counseling, uh, I always tell them there's only one person you can really control and that's yourself, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, when you're giving someone a tool, oftentimes what we do is we take that tool and we turn it into a weapon as opposed to taking that tool and really allowing Jesus 
uh, to dissect our own heart and our own soul. And so that that's my encouragement to us as a church is for us to all not look around the room and say, oh, what traditions are you holding on to? But to really self-evaluate and say, man, what are the things that I'm wrapping my identity in? I love that you said that. What are the things that I'm wrapping my identity in and that I've turned into an idol that maybe I need to let go of and allow Jesus to help me bring that, uh, bring me through that so I can get closer to him and so that we can see more people come to know him. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, well, Matt, I, I'm excited because we're going to start a new segment on our podcast, and it is called the Ask Anything segment. Ask anything. Ask anything. Ask anything. Ask anything. Ask anything. And so uh, we're going to go ahead and step into to that now. And uh, basically, uh, we have our Ask Anything series, and uh, we don't ever get to get through all the questions that come in through the text line. And so we're going to tackle those questions right here on this Crossroads Connect podcast. And so uh, Ask Anything, we'll wrap up with that. And I'm just going to ask this question to you. This is a question that came in, and then you can go ahead and, and give me your thoughts on it. So here's the question. What are your thoughts on the modern-day notion of the rapture? Do you believe the rapture has a biblical foundation? Yeah, as I jump into answering this, uh, one of the things that you and I talked about before is that when we do the Ask Anything series, sermon series at Crossroads, uh, you know, this basically the same three type of questions show up, like what do we do with suffering? Uh, what about end times? And then the third question always has to do with the Holy Spirit. And so, yeah, it's uh, so we went ahead and picked this one because we have quite a few questions about end times. And we thought this would just be a fun one uh, to engage in because everybody has questions about the rapture. And so when it comes to the rapture, um, the word rapture actually doesn't appear anywhere in our Bible that you can do a search what? for it. Yeah, what? You can do a search for it, but it's, it's never found. And actually the word rapture that we use comes from the Latin. It's not a biblical term at all. And sometimes we get maybe a little bent out of shape about that, but I'll let you in on another secret. The other secret is, is that Trinity doesn't show up in our, in our Bible either. What? And yes, I know. Like this is, this is blowing minds, right? So uh, throughout history from time to time, theologians have just made up words to help us understand biblical realities and truths. And rapture is one of those. It's a Latin word that literally means to carry off or to snatch away. And when we read through the New Testament, we see a couple of passages in 1 Corinthians 15, First uh, Thessalonians chapter four, where uh, this catching up is described for us, and so maybe I'll just read uh, the Thessalonica or the Thessalonian passage, First Thessalonians chapter four, verse thirteen. Uh, this is to the Thessalonica church, but Paul writes this. He says, "But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep." Now, asleep. This is a common word for death in the Bible, that you right. may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up, that's rapture, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And so when it comes to the rapture, and this passage and this doctrine really of snatching away, 
um, in the end times, when you're thinking of like revelation, we who are alive, who are left on this earth, that the scriptures teach that we will be caught up together in the clouds to meet Jesus in the air. And that's what we refer to as the rapture. And so to answer the question, I would say yes. Uh, it is biblical. There is a biblical foundation for it, even though we actually never find the word in the Bible. Yeah. Uh, I have a theory that I have no way of proving this theory. So don't take this as biblical truth. But, uh, I mean, it says in that passage that the the dead will rise first, uh-huh, right? Yes. That the fall, those who fall asleep will rise first. And so my thought is, I mean... Uh, the other scripture that, that talks about how a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. I mean, God exists out of space and time, right? right? So my thought is, is it possible that when you die, you actually automatically jump to the time when Jesus is coming and you're waking up to the return of Jesus? And so when we talk about, uh, you know, going towards the bright light or whatever— are they actually going towards this moment in time when Jesus is coming and the dead are rising first? Yeah. Yeah. And maybe, I don't know. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, that might be a good thing. Yeah. But you talk about this, right? This is like entering into the Bible t- twilight zone, you know, right. But you know, for us, time is very linear, right? It's measured in seconds and minutes and hours and days and months and years and decades and centuries and so on. And when it comes to us reading the scriptures, we realize that, like you said, that God exists outside of time and that time in the eternal really has is is not running linear, which for us is hard for us to like wrap our brains around. But I think that your theory darn near impossible, Matt. (laughs) That's right. But I think your theory (laughs) has some validity in terms of a of a theological context. So, yeah. So yeah, I, I'll put my so. stamp. I'll put my stamp in pencil behind you. Okay, appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, it, there's no way to prove it until it happens. So, uh, but maybe, maybe uh, sometime in the future, we'll, you know, we'll come back to this and be like, hey, remember back before Jesus came, and you know, we were doing that podcast thing. Yes. Yeah. Actually, on the other end of of eternity, we'll probably still do this podcast thing, and oh, yeah. uh, and we'll remind everybody of how right you were. That, I love it. I'm okay with that. Yeah. yeah. I I feel like I'm due. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm due for something to be right. So. Yeah. so. Um, all right. So here, next next kind of follow up question to that yeah. is, uh, people talk about this rapture in talk in context, obviously, to the Great Tribulation, and so the Great Tribulation is referring to uh, a, a period of seven years. Uh, of just trials and tribulation uh, at the very end uh, of the world. And so can you, by any, in a short way, you know, explain how does that work? Where do you fall in in kind of your, your theological placement of all of that? Yeah. So when we come to the tribulation, like largely we get this out of Daniel chapter nine and uh, it's super involved. It's really detailed. If you want to dive into it, just read Daniel. Your mind will be blown. But it's basically, like you said, the seven-year period of hardship. Or it'll melt away. It'll or it'll melt away, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, the Great Tribulation is the seven-year of hardship and wrath that brings about the end of the error, this error of biblical history. And so typically when people talk about the rapture, the question that follows is, are you pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib, right? Like if you go to a Christian college or a seminary, like that's when you're talking eschatology type things, this is end time stuff. This is like the question, like, where do you sit on this? In other words, when do you think the rapture is going to happen? And so the pre-trib guys or pre-trib people are 
where the rapture in this view is going to happen before Jesus' second coming. Um, that will return quietly. He'll catch up the church. He'll take us to heaven before the tribulation begins. And so the church doesn't really uh, participate in that seven year of tribulation. Now, when it Which comes... Which is like the... That's like the book Left Behind, right? The Left Behind series. That's oh, yeah, how totally. they portray it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That the rapture happens at the beginning of the tribulation. And basically, uh, this understanding is that the church is rescued from that great tribulation and that we're in heaven. Um, as all the other people here on earth suffer through uh, the great tragedy that will be this. And, you know, theologically speaking, this is the most predominant theological view among uh, evangelical Christians, I would say. Then you have the mid-trib rapture. Uh, this is like the least held theological view. And it states that after three and a half years of tribulation, the church is raptured before like all the really terrible bad stuff happens. And so uh, I know a few people who hold this, but by and large, not many people hold the mid-trib. And then you have what's called the post-trib view. And that's the when the rapture happens, that the rapture and the second coming are all kind of one simultaneous event, that the saints rise to meet Jesus in the air as he's coming back for them as the rightful king of earth. And uh, this is the belief that the church will go through the entire tribulation, the entire uh, hardship on this earth. And so um, oftentimes when I explain this to people, they ask, well, where do like the pastors of Crossroads stand or where does the church stand? And so that, you know, we're kind of all over the place. So Pastor Kim, uh, he has a position, but his is really hard and difficult to explain and would take way too much time. Like he is in the... He's out there with you in the in the uh, twilight zone of biblical explanation on this. Uh, Pastor Tim, he is uh, undecided but really excited about where he stands. Pastor Trevor, he hangs out with Kirk Cameron and and those in the pre-trib. And then the really smart guys, the really smart pastors on staff, uh, myself and Pastor Chris, <laughs> we are post-trib guys. And uh -huh. so, um, you know, I don't actually know where you stand. Where do you stand on this, Jared? Are you a smart do guy? I, or are you? Are you? Are do you I, yeah, else? Am I a smart guy, or do I want to hang out with Kurt Cameron? Um, you know, uh, uh, a pastor of mine once told me, uh, "Prepare for post-trib, but hope for pre." Yeah. And and I, I I liked that. I'm like, okay, you know, prepare for post, but hope for pre. Uh, when I read scripture, though, I I just can't. I don't see how the church doesn't go through it. Um, I just really, uh, I don't, that's just how I, I interpret what I read, um, is it has to be at least three and a half, if not the whole thing. Um, but my hope is that I'm wrong. And yeah. so, uh, so that's kind of where, where I fall. You know, that's kind of the thing I think where, um, I would say it this way, that when I read the scriptures, I never see God taking the church out of struggle. Mm -hmm. Um, I always see God leave the church into struggle and actually call the church at times into hopelessness in order to bring hope. And so I look at the great tribulation as this moment of end of time that is going to be absolutely terrible and hopeless. And that through reading the scriptures that God hasn't made it a habit ever of pulling the church out of those situations that he leaves the church into that. And so, um, the interesting thing is, as I've kind of traveled around the world, only rich Westerners believe in a pre-trib <laughs> notion, yeah. right? That most people uh, around the predominant theological view outside of kind of the Western evangelical church is post-trib because they've lived a hard life. They know what suffering looks like. And, um, and they, they realize that, that in the great tribulation, as hard as that'll be, that God will probably most likely leave the church yeah. in it. Yeah, I'm always reminded too of how spoiled we are. 
in how good we have it. Mm. Um, and so even in, 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 you know, our times of turmoil and things like that, man, I'm not living through like the black plague. Uh, you know, I just look at all these things throughout history that, uh, it seems like every generation considers their generation. Jesus has to be coming, yeah. right? It can't get worse than this. Um, and and I, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for, for God's grace to be able to have grown up and lived uh, where and when I've been able to live and really hoping that uh, because of what God has given me, that I'm able to turn that around and really use it as, as an act of service to, to whatever he's, he uh calls me to do yeah um to use use what has been given to me uh to be able to to do good kingdom work and so uh that's just kind of the reality i know that as crossroads church we don't have a specific theological position that we push on anybody um it's an open-handed issue as opposed to a closed-fisted issue which we talk about all the time um in other words open-handed means uh we can have differing opinions and at the end of the day we all believe that jesus is the son of god and in him is where we find eternal life, um, where who Jesus is, is a closed fisted handed issue that we have to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, or else we'll have more of a problem. So, uh, that, that, that's where we are. I think as Crossroads Church, you can correct me if I'm wrong on that, but, um, yeah, so hopefully that answers your question and, uh, feel free to write us at info at crossroadsabc.com. If you, have a follow-up question to what we were just talking about yeah i think you know the way that you summed it up with crossroads statement is absolutely right you know the way that i would put it is kind of similar to the way your friend said it right that paul said that jesus is coming that the rapture is going to happen we believe him so we have our pack our bags packed ready to go whenever that is whether that be the beginning the middle the end and until that time really we live every day of our life for the fullest to the fullest for jesus bringing his glory Mm -hmm. into this world uh, moving towards a community that is flourishing and uh, praying that, that Jesus comes soon and that we yeah. get to be swept up with him. And so that's where yeah. we put our hope. Absolutely. And the thing that I would like to wrap up with, Matt, is that we're not called to live a life of fear. And I think that when people start looking at end times or tribulation or any of this stuff, that they start thinking about, man, I got to start preparing for how I can survive through the tribulation. Uh, and I don't think that's at all what God is asking us to do. And in fact, it doesn't, people will ask that question. Do you think we're in the end times now? And I, my, my gut reaction is it really doesn't matter mm. uh, because what God has called me to do and what God is calling me to do remains the same exactly. regardless of where we're at in biblical, in world history and biblical history, right? And so, uh, and I don't want to be someone that is living every day afraid uh, because I already know where my hope is. My hope is in eternity with Jesus. It's not in this life. And so for me to be stockpiling and doing all of these things, like I don't want to be an idiot either, you know, so there's a balance there of, you know, uh, being a good steward of what God has given you. But I don't want to base my decisions on on survival tactics and on, uh, you know, and fear. I don't want those to be my drivers. I want I want Jesus to be my driver. Yeah, that's a good word. That's a really good word. So, well, thank you guys so much for listening today. Uh, we look forward to episode 13 with you next time. As always, check us out on Facebook, on Instagram, crossroadsabc.live. You can catch our live services and our live events. Uh, man, so good uh, to be with you guys today. Have an excellent, excellent week. And until next time, peace.